Well, you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6. If you're hoping for something uplifting today on this hot evening, we've come to the dark day of riches. So it'll be perhaps uplifting in a dark way. Uh, but he turns to consider riches all the more and how a common evil that he sees with it under the sun. So we're going to look at the entire chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6. So I will read the entire chapter, begin reading, uh, actually at chapter 5, verse 18, to set the context. So chapter 5, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 6. Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor, in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he, for it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place? All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. What more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. He cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that that increase in vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord, our God, truly without you, we are restless. Truly without you, this world is one that wanders. And yet we are thankful, O God, that you give rest to your people. You give us temporal rest each and every Lord's Day. You give us times of good food, times of vacation, good things that you provide. But even more so, O God, we long for our heavenly rest. We long for that time where we will no longer sin, no more sorrow, no more suffer. We long for that time, O God, where we will be with you, world without end. And where we strive to enter your rest by the power of the Spirit. And we are thankful that there still remains a Sabbath rest for God's people even now. And so we pray, O God, that we would not be restless, but we'd find our hope and strength in you. Even with the temporal things that you provide, may we find our hope and strength in you. May we be joyful and modest, attached with the things of this world, for truly in and of themselves, they bring darkness, they bring sadness, and they bring much sorrow. Yet, O God, we pray that you give us all the, the power to use and enjoy these things in a right way, that you'd help us to not be slaves to our sins, but recognize we are slaves to righteousness and can do what is right in your sight by the power of the spirit not perfectly but thankfully we do it in the in the finished work of the lord jesus christ and so we pray oh god you'd help us as we come to consider this word once again 
as we come to consider sadness in this world, may we find our hope and joy in you. May we find our hope and joy in knowing you. May we cling to our Christ in whom there is rest. And so we pray, O oh God, that if uh, for your saints today, that you would give us rest, that you'd give us strength, you'd help us not to serve God and mammon. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, O oh God, we pray that you would show them their restlessness and show them their need for the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might believe. And we pray, O oh God, in all things you would be glorified, for we are not in control, but you are. For you are God and we are man. So help us to recognize this as we come to your word. Please help us once again to better understand what the scriptures say. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as the preacher has often said in this book, he says, what is has already been and what is to come has already been. Their history is cyclical. The problems of this world that are common to mankind recur. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see those various sins pop up again, again, and again. And certainly we see this with the love of money. Certainly we see this with the love of the things of this world. And two enigmas that will always be with us. That love of money, but also the day of death. Money will not satisfy in and of itself. And it will not satisfy because one day we all shall die. Go to the time that God has appointed for us. Love of money is a problem, and it does not satisfy, and death also is that great leveler. And he's already, we've already seen this in Ecclesiastes 2, 4, and 5, and he comes again to deal with it here in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And certainly we see in this book, or have seen in this book, the enigmas of life, the inconsistencies of this world that we have to wrestle with. Things are not always black and white because of the fallen nature of mankind. And really, as I've said, we ought to read Ecclesiastes in light of Proverbs and in light of Job. In Proverbs, there's a lot of retribution. You'll do good, you'll receive good. You do bad, you'll receive bad. Well, Ecclesiastes helps balance that out with the inconsistencies. The book of Job helps balance that out as well. And certainly we're going to see that tonight when we consider children and consider uh, riches in relation to them. So we see it come to a head and attention already. I'll throughout the book, but we'll see it here again tonight in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Vanity of vanities, what profit has man in all his vanity under the sun? And so the section is, what about riches? What about good things? What about wealth? What about honor? What about all those supposed good things that God gives? And again, there's tension, there's juxtaposition. Riches only bring hurt, chapter 5, verses 8 through 17. Then there's this carpe diem, seize the day. God can give you the power to enjoy those good things, and we can ought to praise him for those benefits, but we come to a dark place once again in chapter 6. There's more evil associated with riches. So the problem is very clear, death and riches. Again, riches that do not give rest, riches and material things that do not eternally satisfy. He's going to give us a very dark analogy when we come to verse uh, verse three and four better a stillborn than he very dark analogy considering one who loves riches and tries to find their rest in riches rather than something else rather than god almighty and then the other problem is very clear death we all go to one place our life is but a vain life our life is but a shadow our life really is quite insignificant when you consider eternity and consider our god and preacher warns us of this very thing so is there any place that man can find rest 
And so in Ecclesiastes 6, the preacher reminds us that it is better to be stillborn, better to be dead, than to not be able to receive the good God gives. So we'll look at this under two headings this evening. We'll see the darkness of riches, verses 1 through 6. And secondly, we'll see the futile desire of the rich, verses 7 through 12. So the darkness of riches, verses 1 through 6, and then the futile desire of the, of the rich in verses 7 through 12. So a lot of darkness, a lot of sadness, a lot of reality that we have to face in a fallen world. So let's first look at the darkness of riches, verses 1 through 6. Notice the vanity of being unable to enjoy the good things in verses 1 and 2. He continues his observation. There is an evil, verse 1, which I have seen under the sun, and it is common to mankind. He said this in 513 with riches. There is a severe evil, which I have seen under the sun. And he says, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. They disappear. They go away by some perhaps misfortune or bad business that we saw in verse 14. He has nothing for his son. He has nothing for his children to give them. Naked he returns to, uh, from dust to dust, he shall return. That is an evil in this world, a sadness in this world. And then again, we saw the goodness of it, but then he comes to return to that evil, that common evil that he sees under the sun. It is a common problem, as he says, it is common among men, a common, common problem that shall come again and again and again. I don't know about you, but when I hear about things that happen again and again and again, and I see things that happen again and again and again, it kind of gives me a lot of comfort in a very depressing way, doesn't it? <laughs> this is what has, what is, has already been, and what shall be, has already been. When we observe, when we see struggles, when we have our own struggles, when we see sadness, and when we see uh, a man who has so much but only wants more. It is something that is common to all of mankind. There is sin and there will always be sins in this world. And so it is common. And he focuses in on a wealthy man. He says that in verse 2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor. He continues the same order that he did in verses 18 and 19. God gives good things. God gives wealth. God gives riches. God gives blessing. God gives so many things in this world. And the implication is anybody can have many things from God, and everybody ought to recognize where uh, all of our things come from. But certainly he hones in on the wealthy, the ones who have status, the ones you'd think would be able to enjoy the good things of this world. Well, that's where vanity comes in. That's when the enigma doesn't make sense. That's where we see the other portion of what God gives. God gives good things, but God also has to give the power to enjoy those good things. And this is what we see. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him power to eat of it. Same language that we saw in verses 18 and 19 where it says that God has to give him the power to eat of it in verse 19. It is his heritage. It is a gift of God. That is, the riches don't master him, but he has master over the riches. And notice both things are a gift. God gives temporal blessings, but God also gives the ability to enjoy those temporal blessings in a right way. I tried to point out last time in the positive aspect of this, 
that only Christians, at least Christian, only Christians should be the ones who recognize all the blessings, spiritual and temporal. We have a doctrine of creation. We have a doctrine of providence. We have a doctrine of sin. We have a recognition that we are man and he is God. And God in his goodness gives good things. So we ought to praise him and thank him for what he has given unto us. We ought to do such things. But there is a great evil. One you would think should be the happiest person ever. One you would think would be the greatest and most satisfied. Who finds rest is the one who does not because God has not given it unto him. He cannot enjoy of it. He cannot love it. It is vanity and striving after win. It is an evil affliction. God gives good things in this world, but because of sin, people don't recognize where those benefits and blessings come from. And remember, general revelation shows that there is an infinite, good, wise, and powerful God in this world. It shows that there is a God, a true, the one true God in this world. It doesn't save but leaves man without excuse before God on that judgment day because he has done so many good things. God has not left himself without witness in that he did good. He gave fruitful rain from the heavens and fruitful seasons that our hearts might be filled and full of gladness. And it is a great travesty when man does not recognize where that comes from. And it is a great enigma and vanity as well does not give him power to eat of it but verse two a foreigner consumes it now he doesn't say why or the specific situation that occurs here or how it is that a foreigner is able to take his money but the result is somebody not himself somebody not in his family somebody who did not work for that very labor is going to enjoy that very thing it is an enigma and striving after wind. Isn't that a vain thing? Someone works hard, someone builds up wealth and riches and fame and honor, and yet they're not going to enjoy it. Their families are not going to enjoy it. Somebody else is going to enjoy that. That is a vain thing and striving after wind. That is an enigma and an evil affliction when somebody else eats of it rather than the one to whom God gave those very things. And this enigma is then illustrated in that depressing way. In verses three through six, notice we see that unsatisfied soul continues in verses three through six. And this is where Proverbs and Ecclesiastes really clash here. You think that one who has lots of children and has lived many days is a blessed man. But that's where Ecclesiastes helps balance things out. In Proverbs chapter 17, our preacher that is, in this case, Solomon, says, children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. That is, children are a blessing, and children are a wonderful thing, and children ought to be viewed as that blessing. But notice what the preacher says here. If a man begets a hundred children, if he has multitudes of children here, if he has many children and also many years, and lives many years, so the days of his years are many. That's a promise of goodness that God gives. The implication is that this one has honor and respect as well as wealth. He is one who is well-respected, one who has much riches. And this certainly contrasts with chapter four, verses seven and eight with that vanity. 
one who works for himself, one who has no son or brother, and there's no end to all his labors, and his eye is never satisfied, or his eyes are never satisfied with riches. He never asks, For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? The lonely man is never satisfied. That's an enigma. And the one who has family is never satisfied. That is an enigma and a great striving and a great, uh, a great sorrow and perplexity in this world. Their life is still empty. And he illustrates this in vivid, sad, dark details. But his soul is not satisfied with said goodness. Or indeed, he has no burial. Only the wealthy, or I mean, primarily the wealthy, could afford a place to bury their dead. You see Abraham by a place to bury his dead in Genesis 23. Now it's important it's in the place of the promised land. It's the place where the patriarchs would be buried. But he had enough money to do such a thing. Not everybody had enough money to do such a thing. So it really highlights and amplifies the sad state of the rich man who has everything, who has children, who has many years who has riches and wealth and honor and respect, but he cannot enjoy the goodness. He is never satisfied with what he has. He is never contented with the things that God has given him in this world, so much so that no one will claim him at his death. A sad state of the rich who only focus on riches and never their family when they have no one to claim them when on the, on the day that they die, there is no burial for them. Bridges says there is no rest for the miser at his burial. He will not be remembered. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he goes on to give that dark comparison. So he describes everything about this one. He has many, if he has many children, many years but his soul's not satisfied. It's better to be a stillborn child. Verse three. I say that a stillborn child is better than he. Now a stillborn child in the Old Testament was a sign of great evil and severe judgment. We see this in Psalm 58 and Job three. Job talks about how it, not just that it would have been better if he was never born, but it would have been better for him if he was a stillborn never saw the light, never saw the sun, never came out and had to live in this place where there's toil and sadness. And it shows how the preacher's despair intensifies here for us with riches and the sadness that it does bring. And the sad part is one who does not see the sun and seeing the sun describes someone who is alive. So even though we certainly believe that any child at conception, anyone, a, a, a child is, you know, made a child at conception. The image is still vivid, a stillborn child, one who does not see the light, one who never came into this world, one who is in darkness is better than he. For he says, for it comes in vanity and departs in darkness and its name is covered with darkness. And though it has not seen the sun or known anything, verse five. This has more rest than that man, than the man with children, than the man with many years, than the man with wealth and riches and honor. The stillborn child has more rest than he, even though he may live a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. 
for all those that are falling asleep, there's a pop trivial quiz right now. Who is the oldest man in the Bible? Methuselah, right? Does anybody know how old he was? 969, so almost a thousand years. So perhaps he's in view here. That is the oldest man lived twice for 2,000 years. Even if he lives a thousand years but has not seen goodness, it is better to be that stillborn child who never came into this world and saw all the toil and sadness that this world has uh, fallen into. He lacks rest in chapter four or verse six, better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Chapter five, verse 12, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Even though one might have many, they do not have rest. And rest is a gift that only God can give when it comes to the temporal things and more importantly, the eternal things of this world. And what's interesting is Lamech in Genesis 5, 28, right before Noah comes on the scene. Anybody know what Noah's name means? Rest. <laughs> 928, Lamech lived 180 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Man, since that curse, has been seeking to find rest from his toil, from the sweat of his brow under the sun. God, in a very interesting way, uses Noah to bring about some rest, but also to restart mankind and to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. But Noah is called the one who shall bring comfort and rest in such a dark, dark world. So rest is what the rich man does not have. And then even death, do not all go to one place. I think all of this, in light of what we saw last time as well, shows how important it is to know God for eternal life, but also for temporal life, right? Someone without God or does not, who does not know God in this world cannot recognize where their blessings come from. That is vanity and striving after wind. How much we need God to even enjoy the things that do not last, right? We make those things that are going to rust, that the moths are going to eat, we take those things and abuse them. We take those things and we do not use them aright. We grumble and complain we don't have certain things. How much do we need God Almighty, not just for everlasting life, but for how to live in this world as well? To have a right understanding of all the world, the right understanding of all things that he has revealed as it pertains to life and godliness in this world. That's why we must have a joyful modest, detached approach to this world. A, because we've been redeemed. We have God's word. Hope we ought to know it better, but also because we know based on that word that God gives good things. Bridges says, our real happiness, therefore, is the thankful improvement of God's own gifts, acknowledging his prerogative to give the power of enjoyment, no less than the blessing to be enjoyed. Without faith in God, all is vanity 
and striving after wind. Without faith in God, all of life is restlessness and all of life is darkness. We need God for everlasting life. We need God to guide us in this life as we make our way to that celestial city. And we need God to help us when it comes to the right use of the benefits he gives, both in thankfulness to them and recognizing where they come from. So that's the darkness of riches. Let's then look secondly at the futile desire of the rich, verses 7 through 12. Notice in verses 7 through 9, we see the wandering of desire. Again, the unsatisfied soul theme continues in verses 7 and 8. All the labor of man is for his mouth. The fruit of the labor is to be enjoyed. You go, you earn some coin, you're able to buy some food to eat so that your wife can put it on the table for you or you can make it yourself. Go and enjoy it. That ought to be what it is. Rather than sitting there stewing, grumbling, and complaining about your day. Well, this guy was that. This guy did this. This guy cut me off. This guy said that. Not, wow, Lord, thank you for what you've given me. Lord, thank you for the benefit that you provided. All the labor of man is for his mouth, yet the soul is not satisfied. Thankfully, Christ forgives us for all our mumbling and grumbling and whining and complaining and murmuring. Because we're grade A grumblers, whiners, murmur, I said, there's all different words there that describe us. But notice, and yet the soul is not satisfied. How often do you and I still have the remnants, brethren, of remaining corruption? How often are our souls not satisfied when they ought to be? And again, there's forgiveness in Christ. All our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. But how often are we like this? We don't realize, wow, God gave me this job. Thank you that I can earn an honest wage today. Thank you for the honest living that you have provided. Thank you, oh God, that you always watch over me. I am more of more value than the birds of the air. We have to praise him and thank him for those things daily for such things. And notice he compares the wise man and the fool in verse 8. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? We saw the wise man and the fool in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Wisdom is the right use of God's law, the right use of knowledge, the right use of good things in this world. And just because someone has riches doesn't mean they have the ability to use them rightly. And someone who might have riches might actually be a fool because they do not use them appropriately. And so... Perhaps here the wise man is the one who is perhaps not as rich as the fool. What do, and perhaps the wise man here is the poor man. What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? The fool may, uh, may have much, but he does not have that wisdom to enjoy. Henry says, even a poor man who has business and is discreet, diligent, and dexterous in the management of it, may get as comfortably through this world as he that is loaded with an overgrown estate. Consider what the poor has less than the rich, if he but knows to walk before the living, who knows how to conduct himself decently and to do his duty to all, how to get an honest livelihood by his labor, how to spend his time well and improve his opportunities. What has he? Why he is better beloved and more respected among his neighbors. He has a better interest than many a rich man 
that is griping and haughty. What has he? Why, he has much of the comfort of this life, has food and raiment, and is therewith content, and so is as truly rich as he that has abundance. Where do riches and wealth truly come from? They come from God, but also the ability to use them wisely and to recognize everything as a gift. He goes on to say, or the preacher goes on to say in verse 9, goes on to a better than saying, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This is vanity and grasping for the wind. Sight of the eyes perhaps refers to being alive. Perhaps he's contrasting with verses three through five. It's still good to be alive, but it's good to understand what is right before you. Understand the sight of your eyes. See what you see right before you. And I have this wandering desire of what you do not have. And that image of language of wandering desire is that restlessness. You don't see the good things that are staring you right in the face that are right there. We got blinders on. We wear things like this so we don't see what's right below, uh, below our eyes. We're looking ahead to the horizon rather than what God has given us now. That's why it's called daily bread, isn't it? We ask him for our daily bread. And then hopefully at the end of the day, we thank him for our daily bread. That's why the Lord Jesus says we shouldn't worry about tomorrow for today has its problems, right? And if God guides us through each and every day, we should thank him for each and every day that he guides us through, even through perplexity and enigmas and sufferings. Is God not with us and does God not guide us and should we not be content with what we see before our eyes? Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of desire, this restlessness, this this, this, this can just always going and always thinking this is vanity and grasping for the wind. And he goes on to talk about, again, very depressing, but how we are in control of absolutely nothing in this world, right? We all like to think we're in control. And usually as Calvinists, we say that in a positive way. God is in control. And brethren, I believe that as a Calvinist, God is in control. But you have to see the tension of Ecclesiastes 6, verses 10 through 12. This is not positive here. People want to be in control. People want to say that they have the power over their lives. Do we really? Notice verse 10. That everyone is, he has been named already. For it is known that he is man. And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Again, he's going back to that cyclical view of history and similar things like Ecclesiastes 1 and 3 emerge here again. And even in Ecclesiastes 3, I mean, boy, talking about injustice and talking about how we're all going to die and how God tests us to show that we are, you know, no better than the animals and why injustice prevails. I mean, are we really in control of anything? And he brings that up here. Whatever one is, he has been named already. And perhaps what he's trying to draw out here for us is that there is an order in this world. There is an order of creation in this world. And the creator has created that order in this world. And since he is the creator, we, the creature, ought to then recognize that we are the creature and he is the creator, right? So often we want to be the creator of our own 
futures, our own lives, our own dreams. Who is the creator, brethren? And who is the providential provider? And again, God does good things, but you have to see the tension here. That's why it shouldn't be surprising when you're telling someone about Calvinism and they look at you with their eyes crossed. What do you mean I'm not in control? What do you mean we're just puppets? What do you mean we don't do? What do you mean? That shouldn't be surprising, brethren. It shouldn't be. I know as Calvinists, we get in our cage stage and want to fight everybody. When they say free will, we just ream them out for such things. We shouldn't do that. But maybe we should recognize they're struggling. There is an order to this world. And God is God and we are man. That's the whole point here. He has been named already. And perhaps the language there, God has even named the host of heaven. God has named the sun and the moon. He has named all the stars. Psalm 147, the illuminaries in the sky. He has given them their name. God, and he has made this world according to his design. And it highlights for us that when it comes to matter, again, it can be boiled down to two things. God and not God. God and all things not God. And that should then put us in our place and recognize that, right? And recognize that we are created in his image. Certainly the preacher is wanting to draw our attention back to Genesis 1 26, but in a thoroughly oppressive way. <laughs> God made man up, out, uh, upright, but he sought out his own devices. And perhaps what he's trying to do is to highlight how we were created in the image of God, yet we brought sin into this world. Original dignity compared with our present degradation, right? God made man in his image and holiness in righteousness, and in knowledge, to be God's vice regents in this world, to be fruitful and multiply, and Adam failed. We fail. Now, there's a, there is a silver lining here. I'm going to cut that tension a little bit. Doesn't it show forth the glories of the last Adam all the more, and what he has redeemed us to, what he's saved us from, and where he's guiding us, how we are in his image how we are in, how we are changed and transformed into the new man, according to Ephesians chapter four and all that he does, how even though there's perplexity in this world, he walks with us through that perplexity and he'll guide us to a place where there's going to be no more of that perplexity. God is gracious and merciful and good, even here to teach us that we are not in control. God's ways truly are better than our ways. And so often we want to say that we're mightier than him. Who can contend with him who is mightier than he? And Job tried. That didn't work out so well. We often try and that does not work out so well. Do we, the clay, offer advice to the clay maker? Isaiah 45 and Romans chapter 9. How often we think we would run the world better. How often we, th- uh, we balk at the plans of God. How often we think we would be more compassionate than the God of heaven and earth. We think we're greater than him. But that's what the Bible teaches or uh, reverses. That he shows forth that God is great and we are nothing. It is known that he is man. And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. And he goes on to say in verse 11 and 12. A lot of ways, verse 11 and 12, he just 
has no words. It's just so perplexing. Since there are many things that increase in vanity, how is man the better? Again, it's very depressing. It's a thoroughly oppressive approach to the creator-creature distinction here. And then he goes, I cannot find his words there. And then in verse 12, he goes on to explain why. For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Rather than that's our life, a shadow. And a shadow is just a reflection of a substance. It's not really a substance, is it? It's just something you kind of, it's there. But it really is, comes and goes with the light as quick as possible, doesn't it? That's our life. Sorry to make you feel bad and depressed. I know all the young people, they're like, my life, I got so, it's before our eyes. There's so much. Brother, I'm 33, 33. And I had a depressing thought. After the next 33 years, I'll probably be a grandfather, right? Now I'm looking forward to be a grandfather, but I'm also only 33 right now. So, but I'm a third through my life if I live till 99. And I may not live till 99. How quickly time flies, how quickly life goes by. We are but a vapor. We are but a shadow. And brethren, we live a very, (laughs) well, according to here, the days of his vain life. How depressing without God. How sad without a recognition of the creator. How sad without redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are but a shadow to show how insubstantial we truly and actually are. And then the afterlife. Do we really know? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? After we die, do we really know what our children are going to do? Do we really know what's going to Do we really care what's going to happen after we die when, in this world? All is vanity and striving after wind. We know very little, dear brethren. We know very little. We know very little about the future. In fact, we don't know the future. We can plan, but we don't know the future. We really don't know much, but thankfully God is still pleased to reveal good things to us in his word. And even the scriptures, brethren, is accommodation to us. It is baby talk. It is goo-goo gagas for you and I, Because that's how small we are and how great our God truly is. And all of this, again, the preacher is going to drive to that point when he gets to Ecclesiastes 12. We've already seen some of the resolve of that tension. It all has to do with God, right? Life is restless without God. So where do we find our rest? In God. And thankfully, we can find our rest through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Right? Doesn't he say such things? My burden is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because Christ worked for us, brethren, that we might have rest. And as we walk our short, shadowy lives, we do so united to him. And we do so knowing that we have rest in him. We do so as we strive for rest, as Hebrews says. And we do so as God gives us times of rest. Is God not good to give us times of rest in this vain life? 
we work six days and God gives us the seventh, or I guess technically he gives us the first to rest upon. The Lord's day is a market day of the soul and rest is not meant to be idleness, but rest is resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is rest. I know you're like, Mike, I'm falling asleep, but this worship is rest, isn't it? Resting in him, being strengthened in him, being encouraged in him. Brethren, that's why we're not supposed to work seven days a week. God gives us rest, thankfully, on the Lord's day. God gives us vacation. God gives us food. God gives us breaks. Those are all rest as well, aren't they? Only in rest. Only can we find rest in God Almighty. And remember, God worked, then rested, did he not? As that pattern for creation. It's important to rest in God's ways. And mainly we rest in our creator, not the created things. Bridges says, happy indeed are they who labor in dependence upon him, who alone can bless their work. And thrice blessed are they who are laboring for eternity and yet receive the reward of their labor as the free gift of their divine master. We trust in our creator. There is balance and understanding, hopefully for the people of God. God gives good things, but those good things can be bad gods. And even though the world is restless, God is pleased to redeem sinners that we might find rest in we find rest in him by faith, so much so that we do not need to fear when death comes. For when death comes, or when Christ returns, brethren, we shall enter into that eternal rest. No more wandering, no more exiles, no more fears. We shall make it to our home in that celestial city. And thankfully, when we make it to that place, we shall find home where we will, will not have to go out anymore. I'm going to close with Revelation chapter 3. As he's speaking to the church in Philadelphia, that faithful church. He says in 3.12, I think Revelation is all about the encouragement of the people of God on the way to that celestial city. Christ is risen. He is with you. And he is walking amongst you as you make your way. And he says in verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. We will make it home and never have to leave. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. I will write on him my new name. Love. Uh, love of money, love of riches, do not give rest, but only in Jesus, brethren, will you find rest for your souls. Cling to him, love him, look to him in faith, for thankfully we shall enter that rest because of him. But let us pray. Well, God, truly this world is a restless, perplexing place. And yet we're thankful, O oh God, in your work of redemption, that you redeem sinners out of it, you redeem sinners as we still walk in it, O oh God. Even as we walk in it, we know that we have rest in Christ even now. O oh God, so often we are tired and weary. So often we are perplexed. So often we toil in this fallen world. But we're thankful for each and every Lord's Day. That is that market day of the soul. 
that day of rest that we get to come and think of you and ponder heaven and pray to you and call upon you and enjoy time. Don't have to think about other things that we normally think about during the week, but yet so often we do. And please forgive us for that. Thank you, O oh God, that you truly give us, even throughout the week, times of rest, times of refreshment, times of, of encouragement. We pray, O oh God, that we would take them. We pray, O oh God, that we would recognize the good gifts you give and that we'd also ask that you give us a right use of them, that they would not uh, be lords over us, but that we would be lords over them. For you have redeemed us and changed us and given us the indwelling Holy Spirit. So may we make use of those good things. And thank you, O oh God, that even uh, you still redeem restless sinners out of darkness into marvelous light. And we pray that you continue to do so. We pray, O oh God, that you show many sinners the restlessness of this world, the uh, how riches do not satisfy, though one lives 2,000 years. We know that this is vanity and striving after wind, O oh God, and we pray that you would show them their sin and show them their need for our Christ. Thank you, O oh Christ, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Thank you that a bruised reed you shall not break and a smoking flax you shall not quench. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness towards us. And even as we read about the sad things of this world, May we be uplifted in our Christ and uplifted in the fact that you are God and in control of all things. Please forgive us for thinking we are in control, but help us to put our faith in you who is God and who is the creator and who is the providential guider of all things and who is the redeemer of your people. Thank you that you work all things together for the good to those who are called, to the to those who are chosen and called uh, by you. So we pray that we put our faith in you, even what man means for evil, you do mean for good. So we're thankful, O God, we can put our faith in you, the God who does not change, the God who is our rock, the God who inhabits eternity, and the God who is pleased to dwell with those who are yours. So we pray, O God, you'd give us rest the rest of this day. We pray, O God, you'd give us strength for tomorrow, and may you be honored and glorified as we make our way to that celestial city. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.